Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be back. You don't realize how good you have it till you go somewhere. So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Dean Hendrickson, and I'm one of the pastors here. I have the privilege of serving alongside Danny and Dan and Chris and serving all of you, and I do consider it a great honor and blessing. My regular job, if you will, or, or what puts beans on the table is I'm a veterinarian, so I get to do all sorts of cool things, and I've spent the last two and a half weeks in South Africa working on elephants. So I'm back, and for the most part, when the sun comes up, I'm ready for it to be morning, and when the sun goes down, I'm ready for it to be night. And, and much of the time, I, go ahead, I actually sleep through the night, so that's encouraging. I got back on Tuesday. It's always a great learning experience for me, and, and for those of you who have been a, around for the previous time, this was my fourth trip to South Africa, I come back with a great story every time. Something that God has really taught me something through, and, and this is no different. As always, God is more than gracious to really take some time and, and teach me. And I'd like to share with you those things and just to refresh memories for those who maybe have, haven't heard it for a while or for those who haven't heard it at all, just a couple of things. So you've got a picture of us doing elephant surgery in the bush in South Africa. That's where I go. I go to do work on elephants, and, and that's the way it is. The most astounding part is you can actually find that tree on Google Earth which is amazing to me. You can actually see the very tree that we worked under this day. This happened to be the first elephant we did. We actually did the fourth elephant under this tree as well, and the others in different spots. But the very first time I went to South Africa, we were there, and we actually worked on the elephants for the morning. We had some time off in the evening. And let's go to the next slide, because as many of you may appreciate this picture, I had been told a couple times by this really wonderful lady we were with not to get out of the vehicle because of the lions. And, of course, I scoffed at her because I'd worked on lions before, and they're big. And certainly you could see a lion if there had been a lion where we had been working. Can you all see the lion in the picture? This is 10 yards away from the vehicle. And, in fact, is we watched the, the lion, a male and two females, walk across the road in front of us, come down alongside the grass and crouch down and virtually disappear And recognized very quickly that had the lion been in one of the other two places I had gotten out, that I would not have survived, perhaps, my trip. And no one would have been able to show you the wonderful picture of the lion because he would have probably eaten the camera as well. But if you hit the next one, it makes it a little more obvious for the lion. So he lifted his head up a little bit. It brought, you know, back the perspective of perhaps listening to people is not a bad idea. And if they tell you you should be careful and you're in their world, perhaps you ought to be careful, right? So that was good, and we learned we learned a ton. I learned a bunch from that to actually pay attention to what the people were saying. The next trip we went actually had the opportunity to bring Amy along with me, and that was really fun. And and we got a chance to go back to the place where we had seen the lion and spend some time. There's a wonderful group of people there that have this 85,000-acre privately-owned reserve that they have sort of adopted us at some level. And we get to go visit whenever we want to when we're in South Africa. But we were there. We'd done the elephant work, and we were getting ready to leave South Africa. And the lady who have we become the best friends with, her place is 45 kilometers from the main yard. So it just gives you a perspective of the size of this place. So it takes you about 45 minutes to an hour to drive from the main buildings to her house. And she wanted us to come up for breakfast that last morning. And, and there were two things that, her name is Twing, wonderful lady, but there were two things we had learned about Twing the first time. She gets lost all the time, and she never pays attention to time. 
Well, we had to leave for Johannesburg to get on the airplane to come back. And you don't want to miss that flight because it's another day for the next one. And most of them during the our summer there winter are full. So there aren't extra seats. So you might be days before you could get on another flight. It's about a three and a half hour drive from their place to the airport. So we wanted to leave there by noon for a seven o'clock flight. That would give us plenty of time to get driven, get the car turned in, settle in and everything else. I was very trepidatious when Twing wanted us to come to her place for breakfast and a game drive before we left because she always gets lost and she never pays attention to the time. And that, those are two issues for us. Anyhow, it was a beautiful drive. We had the most wonderful time. We stopped and, and we would stop and take pictures. Mind you, we didn't get out of the vehicle and because, of course, you're not supposed to do that. And Twing at, at 11 o'clock looks at her watch and says, no, that's it. No more stopping for pictures or anything unless you absolutely have to. We must get you back to the building so you can go. I was so proud of her. So we started driving no more than 10 minutes later. If the next slide, please. We were driving and there was this little creature coming between the dashboard and the window of this land cruiser. 18 inches from my nose, a snake with nothing between us but a little bit of space. So that was a little exciting, but I thought surely it must be a harmless snake because it would have bitten me otherwise already. And I asked Twing, who was driving, what kind of snake is it? And she looked and she stopped. She said, get out. Now, you remember, this is the same lady who says you shouldn't get out. So this is obviously not a good thing because whatever's in the vehicle is worse than what the potential outside the vehicle is. And it turns out that it was a boom slang. And it's just, oh, I don't know how many of you know about snakes, but when we figured it out, it was all so calm and collected, no big deal. Well, they are listed as one of the 10 most deadly snakes in the world. The reason why they're so deadly is they have a very specific venom. And if you don't use the appropriate antivenom, in the words of the guy that was telling us, you die. Okay. He said, but it's quite possible. This was the discussion at tea after the snake incident. It's quite possible that had the snake bit you, we could have got word to Johannesburg in time. They could have gotten a plane or a chopper up to us. And we probably could have got you back in time to treat you with antivenom. And as long as you knew it was a boom thing that bit you, you probably would have lived. There was a lot of probably in that whole discussion, which made it very interesting. And then the statement of, but if you didn't know it was a boom slang, you would have died. Life is different in Africa, right? It's a a different world than what we live in here. If you go through one of the shanty towns, if you will, if you look at the group of people there that day and you come back four years later, 30 to 40 percent of those people will be dead. It's a different world. We live in a different environment here where we look at things as not likely to happen. They look at life as not likely to be sustained. It's a real problem. Anyhow, God protected us from this snake. And and again, it was just a great lesson in his power. This animal, this snake was 18 inches from my face. It was in the vehicle probably the entire morning and it didn't bite me. And you know what? We didn't know until later it was a boomslang. If it would have bitten me, I would have died. It was very simple and very straightforward. But God just used that just like the lion to show me his incredible power. That he could put something there that I could then recognize how he saved me from that. The next year, next one, we were, we were just there, right? We had just arrived. And the place that we were working, the main entry road, as you see here, is also a runway. 
That's not a big deal. They're all into the economy of space there and making things work. Not a big issue. Next picture. At the end of this is a hangar. And that's where we brought all of our equipment and started setting it up after we arrived to see if everything had arrived intact. We started hooking up all the electrical things to see whether or not they worked and what, was gonna, what we were going to do for the next day because we were going to go find an elephant the next day and do surgery. Well, as we were working, I happened to look down the runway and here comes a plane. Next picture. It was this plane and the plane's coming in and the first thing you notice is He's coming really fast. The second thing you notice is he's missed the first half of the runway. These guys fly all the time. It shouldn't be a problem. He hit the ground and I think recognized this he wasn't going to work. So he locked the brakes. I didn't know you could do that in an airplane, but you can. You probably knew that. You locked the brakes on the thing. And he started to do this down the runway. And I looked at it and I realized that if you could predict the sine wave of which he was curving, he was going to go right through the middle of us. And you recognize there was nothing you could do. People looked up and they started to run. And it's like, where are you going to run to? He's going to go through another plane that's full of fuel. There, we're all here. We're done. This is the end of the story for us. We have just experienced our last day in the world and certainly in Africa. And just at the last second, I mean, it was the time when he just started to come into us and he's no more than 20 yards away at full speed. He has never cut the power. The wheels are locked and he's just leaving a black mark and smoke as he's going. Miraculously, God turns the plane to the right and he goes through a ditch and stops But he shouldn't have. If you watched where he was going, he should have come right through the middle of us. It was just an opportunity again for God to say, I'm in control of all of this. Nothing is happening today that I didn't know was going to happen. And I want you to recognize, Dean, that I have spared you yet again. So pay attention. Trip number four, right? You always wonder... And it was really cool this time. I mean, for me, it was probably as marvelous as the other three trips were. This was the best. Because there was nothing dramatic, no near death. So God had had showed me his power these other three trips by saving me from an impending death. This time instead, he wrapped his arms around me and just showed me his love. It was a struggle because it's a big group of people and there's nobody else that we work with that is a believer. In fact, is pretty much the antithesis of it. So God has me in a place, I believe, for, as a witness in this group. And I continue to pray that I can do that. But about halfway through the trip, I was wore out. I just felt beaten down. It was just one thing after another. I just felt like I just was exhausted. And I just thought, how can I every morning get up and smile and be a good witness to this group when I'd really rather not see them anymore? And so God, what he does is he brings encouragement. So I was sitting there one day. We're waiting for the chopper to find an elephant. It was the the day we never found one. So we waited and we waited and we waited. Next picture, please. And we're sitting there and there's an African that was standing there all by himself. Nobody hardly ever spoke to this man. So I walked over to say hi to him. I walked over and said hi, and his name was Jeffrey. I said, hi, Jeffrey, how you doing? And he said, I'm doing well. And you know what he said to me next? He said, did you know that before we were born, 
God knew we'd be here talking today. That was what he said after he said he was doing fine. What an encouragement to me. What a wonderful thing. We just had an opportunity to just share with each other where we were from. And this man, I I doubt I gave him anything back. But he buoyed me up for the rest of the trip. It was everything I needed. It was astounding. We didn't see anything else other than that was the first, that was the second words he said. And then he talked about how God just knows everything. God knows everything. You don't have to worry. You know, he said, if God tells me that I have to go here and stand between you and an elephant today, I'll do it. Because I know that God knows it's the right thing for me to do. And what a blessing it was. It was so different for me because everything else had been this almost bring you back from near extinction, if you will, to instead just the loving arms of God. And, and Jeffrey, he's just the coolest guy in the world. So that's Jeffrey at the front. If you hit it again, it just makes it a little bit bigger. So Jeffrey was helping. A, that's Jeffrey. And he is my favorite man in Africa. But what a blessing for him. So, so just kind of give you a perspective of, of where I've been and what I've been doing. And then the concept of missional. I, I struggled with this. We came upon the title of teaching about missional today because of the men's retreat is going to be about being missional. And I struggle with the whole concept of the perspective that people use with it, not the idea of what it means, but rather I struggle with catchphrase things. I struggle with people designing new words to be catchphrases, and then everybody jumps on this bandwagon, this jargon, if you will, bandwagon, and living on that, but not really even having a clue what it means. And I, missional for me, I think, is one of those. The concept behind it is absolutely critical to our life as believers. But sometimes I I fear we jump on bandwagons, but we don't even care really where it's going because it's cool. Jeffrey was missional. That's how he lived his life. He was the epitome. I couldn't believe it. I looked at it and I thought, all I need to tell you is Jeffrey about Jeffrey. And that's missional. This is a man that God had directed to walk up to me and say, you know what? God knew we were going to be here. God knew you were going to be struggling right now, and I'm here from him. And it's all about that. And to the point where I would lay my life down for you, even though you spoke to me for the very first time today. Because if that's what God wanted, I'd know it's what I'm supposed to do. And that's missional. I mean, that's what this is all about. And I thought, you don't need me. You can need Jeffrey. I've got to bring the guy back. Let him teach. Just his enthusiasm for Christ is, is astounding. That's what he said as we finished our discussion that day was, I just love Jesus with everything I have. There is nothing that he can't take from me. I don't care because I love him. Amen. That's missional. That is it as an example in living color. And it was astounding to me. But let's take a step back and let's dig into missional a little bit. Let's see what it looks like and let's see where the foundations of being missional are. See, we can't do it on our own. We can talk and talk and talk about being missional and mission statements and all mission, whatever you want to add in there. But realistically for us, it's mission impossible. We can't do it. It's not within our scope or our ability to accomplish these things. It is 100% based upon the rock. 
And that's where it comes from. I can't offer you anything about missionality or being missional without Christ. And what's really fascinating to me is, is interestingly enough, there's probably more use of missional, the term missional, for not truly Christian-based perspectives than there is Christian-based. I was fascinated by that. If you look it up in the Oxford Dictionary, they define missional as relating to or connected with a religious mission or missionary. That seems pretty straightforward. You can do that. So some type of connection to religion uh, in the Oxford Dictionary. If you go on and look at other people's perspective, they say in the contemporary usage, missional is an adjective alternative to missionary. It's really no different. Missionary, missional, same thing. Now, then there's another group that would say, ah, no, that's not it at all. It's not the fact that it's missional or, or missionary. Missionary was the old thing. The old church did missionary stuff. They would reach out. They would go to other places and they would teach people about Jesus. But missional is a totally different thing. In fact, is at some level, there's a group of people who look at missional as being this new postmodern term. I love postmodern. I don't even know what that means. Postmodern. Who comes up with this stuff? But it's a new postmodern term that we use to actually include things. It's not about Jesus anymore. Being missional in this group of postmodernism is not about Christ at all. It's about inclusion. We are missional when we include everybody, when we include all thoughts, when we include all perspectives. We then become missional. Well, I don't think that's what we think about at all when we think of missional. It's a challenging thing to look at. We also think it's a new word. Want to know when it was first used? 1907, a hundred years ago, was the first terminology, or first time, W.G. Holmes, in Age, Justinian, and Theodora II, page 687, it says, several prelates, oh, by the way, I've read the entire book, I wouldn't bother, no, I'm kidding, several prelates whose missional activities brought over whole districts or even nationalities to their creed. First time, a hundred years ago, we thought it was new. We thought we came up with this cool new term. Somebody coined it, you know, only a hundred years ago. And we, again, we robbed it from somebody. But the perspective here is one that probably fits more with how we look at missional than perhaps the postmodernists do. In as much as it's a use of bringing activities, something in your life to bring groups of people to something you believe in. Your creed, if you will, as he discussed that. And then he talked about they were using they're bringing whole districts of people or even perhaps nationalities to their creed. I would say that most of us, as we look at missional, would talk about missional as being defined as the word that describes the way in which Christians do all of their activities rather than identifying any one particular activity. To be missional is to align one's life with the redemptive mission of Jesus in the world. The concept is rooted in the alignment of every believer and every church with Jesus' mission in the world, just as Jesus knew his mission and aligned himself with that mission. A missional church aligns all of the programs, all of the functions, all of the activities of the church around the redemptive mission of God in the world. That's missional. That's Jeffrey. 
that his life is about everything he has, everything he does, is about preaching and sharing the redemptive message of Christ. But not just spouting it out necessarily, but getting into people's lives and doing that. Missional. 1907, W.G. Holmes beat us to it. Well, let's look into the Bible about missional. Now, recognizing what I just said, do you think there's any shortage of Bible verses or things that we could talk about today about being missional? It pretty much encompasses the Bible. Being missional is here. It's all about it. it it's all about that. So I, in the, when I started this, I thought, what am I going to talk about? Missional. How are you going to pull stuff out? And then by the time I got done, I realized I could start at the beginning and read to the end, and that would be being missional. That, that's what it's about. But let's try to pick up some, some areas that are a little more defining, if you will. And in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, we have the Great Commission. Right? We talk about the Great Commission. Matthew writes in verse 18, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The whole concept that we often look at for being missional or missionaries or evangelistic or whatever it is, is the Great Commission in Matthew. It's where Christ, before he ascended, came to the disciples and said, this is what your life is to be about. This is what it looks like. And it's a great concept here as you look at this in verse 18. And he came up to them and he spoke saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It's cruel, right? Most authority, no, everything, everything is his. And it's an interesting perspective. I, I think, and I'm not sure on this, but I think that Christ being who he was as one of the Trinity of the Godhead could have taken the authority. But he didn't. He accepted the authority from God the Father. So God the Father gave God the Son all authority. And he didn't usurp. And I, I read one essay that had talked about the fact that Christ did not assume or usurp the power. It was given to him. It was granted to him by God. And with that, then he said, you know, it's all mine everywhere. Heaven and earth encompasses everything. The, the whole concept there is, is it is all. There's nothing left. There's no space. There's no little corner that this isn't true in. So Christ is saying all authority and everywhere. Make no mistake, there's no spots where you run out of coverage, right? It's not like a cell phone. You get over here and you don't have any coverage anymore. It's not like that. You have that authority every place. The other neat part about this that it talks about is this is clearly proves his deity. Right? It comes from the Father. This is absolute for all of those who are still maybe struggling a bit. Remember, he died and was resurrected by this time. But he's going to bring it in as, as a clear proof. And the other cool part about this is that it signifies the end of the humiliation of Christ. Right Up until this point, 
there, there had been humiliation from the scribes and from the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Roman rulers and all of these people that culminated just before the crucifixion and at the crucifixion, this humiliation, right? The crown of thorns, the robe, bowing to him, mocking him, beating him. There's a humiliation that was associated. This done now. That is over. That was here. We're now here. All authority has been given to him. His full validity to him. And then he does this because he wants them to understand the purpose of the next statement. Right? What good is it to tell people to go out and do all this stuff if they don't have any authority to do it? If they don't have anything to rest it from? It's our whole concept, right, of, of how we need to live our lives. It's all about the, the foundation that we have with Christ. If we don't have that foundation, then we don't have any authority in these things. We don't provide anything. But he's telling the disciples, make no mistake. I have all the authority. I have it in every spot. The line has been drawn in the sand. From here on forward, there will be no mockery. There will be no humiliation of the Christ. At this point in time, he is the king. He is the ruler. Now, we're going to see that when he comes back even more so. But his perspective is, know that I've drawn the line in the sand and we move forward from here. And with that power, with that authority that I now have, I'm commanding you. Right? What does it mean when somebody comes to you and says, in this situation, I own it. This is mine. And I want you to do this. What if your boss comes to you and says that? What are their expectations? Just going to do it. They're not expecting you to say, eh, I just don't feel like it. They expect you to accomplish it. And that's what Jesus is doing here. And this is our command, our commission. It's, it's what he wanted from us, from the disciples and us eventually as well. So now, since he has that authority, he can send these guys out. And he tells them that, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's really neat to see that because he's it's basically everything. He's just saying, go everywhere and do this. And make sure that you get in these people's lives. I love the fact where it talks about making disciples. Making a disciple is different than sharing the gospel. It's important to share the gospel in making a disciple. But you can share the gospel without any intent of ever making a disciple. Your life could be about sharing the truth everywhere you go. But never taking those people among the next steps that they need to take in order to grow and mature in their, in their salvation. And so I think the whole concept here was it's not enough. It's not that it's bad to share the gospel. But he wants to make sure that there's things in place to grow these people. And I think, again, that becomes part of this whole concept of being missional, living it. So you live your life among people. Who here lives in an environment where there is nobody else and you never see anyone? None of us do. There's people around us all the time. Who here lives in an environment where the only people around them are believers? So I guess that means that there's still room for work. There's still people to impact. And there's still that opportunity to do that. And that's our life. It's our neighborhood. When you're walking down the street, what do your neighbors think? Do they see you as the one who complains all the time because of the noise? Do they see you as the one who never interacts with them, as too good for them? What do they look at you as? What is your life in your neighborhood? What is your life at work? 
What does that look like? What does it look like in your circles? If someone were to stop and write a biography about you that lived either in your neighborhood or worked with you, what would it look like? Would it be Jeffrey? I mean, would they talk about you and say, man, all I know about this guy or this lady, they love this Jesus. They, they would be willing to do anything for Jesus. Wow, how cool is that? That's missional, guys. That's what it looks like. It's, it's your entire life. It's everything you do. Everything you're about. It's down to the smallest portion of your body and your being. is about Jesus. And with that, then, you go out and you make disciples. You share the gospel and you make disciples. And you teach them. You share with them to learn what Jesus was about. And he says in verse 20, And you teach them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, just in case you're worried, don't worry, I'm with you till the end of the age. It's important that we remember that just like being a Christian isn't about going to church on Sunday. Being missional is not about occasionally letting the gospel slip out. That's not God's plan for us. It's not what he wanted. It's about purposeful living that puts you in a position to share the redemptive story of Christ anytime, anywhere, anyhow. Because you never know when you're going to be standing in front of a hut in South Africa and somebody needs to hear it. That's being missional. Those are the struggles I have with flash in the pan, if you will, things that come around. I'm as guilty as anybody of doing that. Jump on board. That sounds cool. Let's do it. Without ever really seeking to learn what it really means. What is it really about? And what will it look like? What would Christ say if he looked at your involvement in that area? What would it be? How would he deal with that? Jesus was missional. Man, everything he did was about it. If you look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38, just towards the end, starting in verse 35, And Jesus was going about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And, and if we stop there, that would be sort of, I think, the classic evangelistic approach. Jesus is Lord. He was God incarnate. He came down to earth. He walked among men. He was the perfect sacrifice. We sinned. We could not get to heaven on our own. He provided that bridge for us. The only way to heaven is to accept him as your savior and accept his death as forgiveness, permanent forgiveness for your sins. Okay? That's the gospel. That's it right there. Now, Jesus did that. He proclaimed the gospel in the kingdom. But this is where it separates, I think, just straight evangelism with being missional. And he healed every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. He lived among these people. He got dirty with them. He sat at the table of people that were very undesirable to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's what he was about. It wasn't about for Jesus to just proclaim the gospel, walk on. He lived with these people. He got in there with them. And seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them. He loved them. 
I don't know if you, you picked up, but, but most of the songs so far this morning were talking about God's love. That concept, that's who, Jesus was about that. It's about the love, and he just he felt compassion for these guys. Because why? These guys were in trouble. They're just like us. They're distressed and downcast. It's like sheep without a shepherd. They needed him. We need him. There are thousands of people that are connected to just this group of people right here, right now, that need him. And it's our responsibility to be like Jesus and try to reach them by loving and and having compassion. And then he looked to his disciples, right? It wasn't even just about him doing this. He was the consummate teacher. And he looked to his disciples and he said, Look, guys, it's a harvest. It's ripe. It's ready for the workers. But we have too few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. It's good to talk about wanting to be missional, but one of the important steps is praying. Who? When? Where? How? What time? What does it look like, God? I have hundreds of people that I interact with on a regular basis. Who's next? Who do I need to be reaching out to? I would love to have had the opportunity to ask Jeffrey what his prayer was that morning. I would have loved to know what he asked for because he knew when I walked up that I needed him. But I didn't just need him to say, God's good, God's great, isn't this wonderful? He reached to the depths of my soul and said, Do you know how much God loves you? He prepared this meeting. He predestined us to meet. Before we were even born, he knew that you needed me to encourage you. I wished I knew what he prayed that morning because I wished I could pray that every day of my life. Who needs me to wrap my arms around them and love them with the love of Christ because they just need it? Because they're downcast. Because they're downtrodden. Because they're like sheep without a shepherd. What a powerful time for me. I was rocked. And I was excited. And I thought, I got the message now. I don't have to worry about preparing for today anymore. It's all there. In this one man, who as we left, the final words were, God bless you. The final words on the last day we were there were, God bless you and thank you for everything. That's, that's missional. This man has it, and I'll bet you he's never heard the word. He probably doesn't even know he's missional. But that's because he's just about Jesus, because he loves him. Chapter 10 in Matthew, there's all sorts of different things that are going on. And Jesus is sending out the disciples now, right? He just told them at the end of chapter 9, look at the harvest. Now he's sending them. Get out there and be combines, guy. 
Get out there and start harvesting this stuff, this fruit. And he's getting them ready in the first ten verses. He's talking about, he summons them and he says, Now, I'm giving you authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And then he he names the the apostles. And then in verse 5, he picks up again. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, saying, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, it's important here to recognize that he's sending them to Israel, period, in this one small spot. When we move on to the end of the Great Commission, he actually leaves Israel out. The Great Commission was about those outside of Israel. He, he was actually moving on there. So it's an interesting dichotomy, but he's going to start here. And he's going to send them and say, go. And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And live with them. Right? Get dirty with these guys. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse the leopards. Cast out demons freely. You received, freely give. Don't worry about money. We'll take care of it. Don't acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two tunics or sandals or a staff. Because the worker is worthy of support. Don't worry, it'll be taken care of. Just go. But live among these guys. Be part of them. Don't just walk up into the city square and say, you're all going to hell unless you accept Christ. Got to go. They lived with them. They ate with them. They slept with them. They breathed with them. They bled with them. They cried with them. They rejoiced with them. In verse 16, he warns them, right? And warning for all of us. Beware. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the courts and scourge you in their synagogue. And you shall even be brought before the governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Oh, hey, sign me up. I want to go on that trip. Behold, beware. That's the reality. If you're out there doing his work, don't expect it to be rosy. Don't expect it to be full of comfort. Don't expect everybody to embrace you with open arms. The reality is that's not what the world wants. They don't want what you have to offer. They need what you have to offer, but they don't want it. Beware. But it's okay. It's okay. Because when they deliver you up, do not become anxious about how or what you will speak, for it should be given to you in that hour what you are to speak. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Isn't that neat? How many of us don't interact with people and share the gospel because we're afraid what to say? Do we have a right to be afraid of what to say? In a fleshly way, absolutely. But in a spiritual way, no, because Christ tells us, don't worry. I'll give you what you need. I'll provide. Just make yourself available. Make yourself ready. And I'll take care of the rest. I'll work through that. Jeffrey said to me, he said, I don't worry because I know that God knows everything. I know that he understands everything. So I don't have to worry. I don't have to be concerned. Because I know. I know that he loves me. And I know that he knows everything. 
what a blessing to live that way in the recognition that God's got it covered. Don't worry about it. In verses 40 and 42, Jesus continues on. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me, the Father. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever, in the name of a disciple, gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Again, it's just about being there. It's about being available and doing things with people and making sure that it's... It's important for you to do that. In Matthew 14, verses 13 through 33, we've got the story of the feeding of the 5,000, walking on the water, calming the sea, all of these things that Christ did with these people. He had so much compassion. You know, he, Jesus had just heard about John the Baptist being beheaded. So he, he, he withdraws in a boat, a lonely place in praise. He needs some regeneration. He needs some reviving. He needs to connect with the Father because of this. Now, he knew what was going to happen. Christ knew that. But he needed to be rejuvenated. He needed to be kind of he needed to be built up. So he withdrew for a bit to do that. And what did the multitudes do when he withdrew? Right there after him. They need what he has. And they know it. So they follow. And when he went ashore... He saw it. It's the same story again. He felt compassion. He healed the sick. He fed the people. The disciples are going, how in the world are we going to feed these people? Right? We know the story there in the marvelous power of Christ and what he did. But the whole thing here, this whole portion of the Bible, it talks about Christ interacting with people. Now, if he would have stayed out on his own, he couldn't have done this. He couldn't have fed the 5,000. Right? He couldn't have done that. So we, there are many times where we've got to withdraw to get built back up. And different people are going to do that different ways. Some people will do that in a group. Others are going to do that individually. But you've got to be among people to impact people. It, it just, it's a critical step in the whole deal. So whether you're jazzed up about spending all your time with other people or not, that's your job. That he expects of us. That's what Christ expects of us to do. So we need to do that. He used this opportunity for the disciples, right? He fed them. He fed the five thousands with a few loaves and a few fish. And then he collected way more than they even started with at the very end with crumbs. And then he sent the disciples away. Why? Because they had some learning to do. All right. The seas got rough. It was horrible. And they were scared, they were frightened, and they looked out, and it's a ghost coming across the water. They were even worse afraid. But then they realized it was Jesus and and Peter, whom God had predestined to be a marvelous and powerful, wonderful man of the church, jumps out. I want to walk on the water too. And what happened? Took his eye off the goal. And he sunk. What did Jesus say to him? Why did you doubt? Why didn't you keep your eye on me? You still have much to learn, Peter. But don't worry. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to keep working. Jesus continued... 
to reach out to people. He lived with them. He struggled with them. He sat in the confines of a boat that was probably a bit foul from, from the seasickness that these guys had. But that was okay. Because you know what? It was critical for him that he impact these 12's lives. Because he knew the impact those 12 were going to have on others' lives. And that one day, some 2,000 years later, he knew that we'd be here talking about this term that we thought we created a couple years ago that's been around for a hundred. Because we still need to get lessons on how to live the lives we need to live in order to provide for him what he needs us to provide him so that many can come saving faith in God. Because that's what being missional is all about. So what's it look like? Again, from a perspective, be careful jumping on jargon bandwagons when you don't know what the jargon means. Depending upon who you bring missional up to, it's going to mean totally different stuff. Just go out and do some Google searches if you want to see what that looks like. There are plenty of groups out there that use missional as this deal to actually decentralize Christ from the mission to including society and the world and inclusion as the mission. Right? So, so there are groups that when they're being missional would be the antithesis of what we would hope to be being missional. We have to be careful that whatever we do, we do it for what? The glory of God. First Corinthians tells us that in chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So are you being purposeful? Are you praying? Are you spending time in prayer, asking, begging, pleading, beseeching God to show you who in your, in your environment, in your realm, in your circle that you need to be sharing with and you need to be working with and helping have you identified your Jerusalems, your Judeas, your Samarias, the ends of the earth? Have you identified those for you? Where are they? What do they look like? Where are you going to take the time and the effort to start getting dirty? When you visit third world countries, you get a whole new perspective on what it means to get dirty with someone, if you will. It's a different environment. We went through a town that is just a travesty. It's just sad. Your heart aches for this town. There's horrible unemployment. They live to drink whatever they can find from an alcohol perspective. They have nothing, and they don't even know what to do. Their life revolves around hoping there's another meal. When, when you walk into that environment... You've got to recognize that if you want to impact those people, you've got to get in there with them, but not become them. Now, that's easy, right? You can see that. But I worked with a group of white-collar professionals over there, directors of zoos, senior veterinarians of zoos, managers of billion-dollar companies. You know what? They need Jesus just as bad as those guys have nothing. They're just harder to reach. You've got to get in and live among them. I was so encouraged by Jeffrey because I was withdrawing from this group of people. Because I just, I, I just felt like I couldn't deal with it anymore. But Jeffrey encouraged me that if I was going to be impactful in these guys' lives, I needed to be with them.
And you know what? God's going to do something. Because he knew that at this point in time, we were going to be there. And he knew that there's one of these guys or more, who knows, 20 perhaps, that are just yearning for salvation and they don't even know it yet. And I built a relationship with one of the people whom I would have said would have been the most difficult to build a relationship with. Now I can't hardly wait to see what God's going to do with it. That's cool. So Jeffrey taught me a ton about being missional because he was. And he lived it. He didn't talk. He didn't teach a word about it. He never said a thing about it. He just was. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you, you are who you say you are. We are so appreciative that you provide so much for us. Lord, I am blessed more than I could have ever imagined. And in the moment of real struggle and frustration, you provided for me everything that I needed to be through that short interaction with Jeffrey. You just do so much. Sometimes I think with all of my wisdom and everything else that I should have all these answers. And and here's a man who has everything I need and has no pretense whatsoever. Would you make me more like Jeffrey? Because I really think he's more like Jesus. And I want to be more like Christ. Would you help each and every one of us to see where the people are that we need to impact? who the people are we need to impact and how to impact them in this society, in this world, whatever that looks like, whether it's here in Windsor or Fort Collins or Denver or or on the other side of the oceans, Lord, it doesn't really matter. Would you guide us? We need you to identify what we need to do or how we need to get there. Because it's only then, Lord, that we can achieve it. Thank you for the opportunity to open your word today. Thank you for the marvelous blessings you bestow upon us, and me especially. And Lord, would you keep us moving in the right direction? Would you not let any of us walk out of here not impacted by you? Not me. Not what I've said, Lord. What I've said is useless garbage. But it's what you have to say that's important. Thank you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.